2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not Bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure. But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our, within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved. But he whom the Lord commends. Pray with me please. Father we bow before you and we praise you God. The only place worthy of making any boast. God, we look to you and ask you for help. We have no power in ourselves to do anything good. God, we look at the words on this page and we can put sentences together and we can understand how words fit with words. But God, really, if you don't come and make things plain to us, we can read the words and go home unaffected, not really grasping what you are trying to say. And God, we want to hear from you, so we ask you to come and help us. Father, we pray for many who are sick. We think of uh, Justin and Devin with Everly in the hospital and, and possibly Henry now also. We pray for John Ferguson. God, others who are battling sickness, and we pray, God, that you would be with them and God, help them to look to you and to trust you even now, and we pray, God, that you would accomplish your good purpose. God, we pray for John as he is in Knoxville with Mr. Roberts, and Mr. Roberts is teaching young ministers. God, we pray that you would give him strength as he speaks and clarity in his thinking and in his conversation as he seeks to convey things he's learned over so many years of walking with you. And we ask God that that time would prove to be profitable. 
We thank you, Father, for your ongoing kindness to us. It is undeserved. But God, we, we praise you for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we looked last week at verses 1 through 6. This week we'll pick up in verse 7. And Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter. Before we jump into verse 7, a quick reminder. The church at Corinth was infected with false teachers. Claiming to be apostles, they sought to lead the church astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3 As a necessary step to accomplishing their goal, they would need to destroy the credentials of the Apostle Paul. The false teachers had successfully led many in the church to look with suspicion on Paul, even to rebel against him. Paul responded with a severe letter that was used to bring most of the congregation to repentance. There were still a few, however, that had not repented. And one of the the major purposes of the letter of 2 Corinthians is to seek to bring them to repentance before Paul visits them. Not only were there still a few who were holdouts, if you will, not repentant, the false teachers were still there also. And surely they looked for any opportunity to gain more ground. We're not told the exact nature of the heresy that they were spreading. But there are several characteristics given in the letters to the church at Corinth. They were evidently people who came from outside the church. They were not native to Corinth. In chapter 11 and verse 4. Paul says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And apparently people were coming and doing just that. And rather than rejecting that or finding that repugnant, they received it. And so here were people coming from other places in a day when there was no internet, And so you couldn't just Google people, you know, and see who they were and where they came from. And you couldn't stalk them on Facebook and stuff like that. And so it would be hard to um, try to evaluate any kind of uh, credentials they gave themselves. I mean, they could come and say whatever, you know, like falsifying a resume. Uh, If there's not a letter of reference to go back to, how do you check? And checking wouldn't be easy. You couldn't just pick up a phone and call somebody. So they could make claims that were hard to verify or um, nearly impossible to verify. They claimed a superior authority to Paul, claiming even to be apostles. Also in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul said, I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. When he speaks of eminent apostles, he's not talking about the apostles back in Jerusalem, the original 11. You know, they're, they're imminent, and I'm, I'm just a you know, Johnny-come-lately. But it's these false apostles who have claimed an authority for themselves and a special relationship with God. They are the imminent apostles, the super-apostles. Third, they appear to be Jews who claim to represent the religion of Jesus, though in reality they preach a different gospel. Also in chapter 11, verse 22, he's in defending himself. Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Descendants of Abraham? So am I. And in verse 4, he had spoken about, again, how they brought a different gospel, which the Corinthians, some had accepted. They were people who had mingled elements of mysticism with Jewish legalism. And they claimed to have a, a kind of a higher knowledge. Though in reality it amounted to nothing but empty speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. They also seem to have adopted the popular rhetoric of the day. That, you know, a way of speaking and arguing uh, that was skillful and highly prized in Greek culture. And because Paul would not adopt it, but spoke plainly, he was criticized as being unskilled in speech. Or in verse... Uh, verse um, 10 of chapter 10, his speech was contemptible. They promoted an antinomian 
ideology, that, that, you know, contrary to the law, that bore its evil fruit, as chapter 12 and verse 21 says, in impurity, immorality, and sensuality. And this fruit was born among the Corinthians so that Paul has to call them back from those kinds of sins. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. And then finally, it appears that they were in it for the money. One of the things that they charged Paul with and mocked Paul about was his refusal to accept money from the Corinthians for preaching. They couldn't understand that. And it appears, you know, that's, that's what they wanted. They, they preached and they, they wanted to get paid. Paul, on the other hand, in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 11 said, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And far from seeing it as, as a weakness, Paul saw it as a strength. There was no one who could point a finger at him and say, he's in it for the money. But as so many false teachers are, these false teachers appeared to be just that. As mentioned last week, in the first nine chapters, Paul addresses the, the, the church with an emphasis on the majority who've already repented. But in chapter uh, 10, he, he shifts gears. He shifts focus. So he still addresses the church. But what he says becomes much more direct. And the emphasis seems to be on those who've yet to have repented. And even on the false teachers who must be confronted. In this passage, Paul appeals to the Corinthians... To make a sound judgment based upon clear evidence. Verse 7, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, says, You are looking at things as they are outwardly. The verb translated looking is one that can be translated several ways. A lot, most of the time, many times, Greek verbs, it's very clear if something is an indicative or an imperative. But this is one where that's not clear. It could be either. And so the New American Standard translates it as an indicative. This is what you're doing. You're looking at things as they are outwardly. And it sounds like you know, you're looking at things on the surface, but you're not really looking at, at the heart. That's what that reads like. The King James, the New King James, translates that as an inter interrogative. An interrogative, right? <laughs> Are you looking at things on the outside? And that's not a direct quote, but that's the, the gist of it. Are you looking at things outwardly? Is that what you're doing? But it could legitimately be translated as an imperative. Look at things like they are. See things like, like they really are. It's, it's right in front of you. And that's how the English Standard Version translates it. It's also how Paul uses that verb in every other occurrence in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, Take care or look out. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. Look out that he does not fall. Verse 18. Look at the nation Israel. Chapter 16, verse 10. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Watch for him. In Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, take care. Look out that you are not consumed by one another. And there are others, and I'll stop there. Um, it doesn't automatically mean that the one that's here in 2 Corinthians 10 has to be an imperative, but I think the evidence suggests it. And also the argument within 2 Corinthians, I think, suggests it. He doesn't... Uh, if, if what he is saying is, are you looking at things outwardly? Then you would expect him to contradict that and say, you shouldn't do that, you should do it this way. But if he is giving us the imperative... Look at what's right in front of your face. 
then you start looking for the evidence that he's talking about. And I believe what we see in the rest of 2 Corinthians 10 is evidence. Here is evidence that's obvious to anyone who wants to look. And what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do is to, um, to appraise the ministry, Paul's ministry and the ministry of the false apostles. Appraise it. Look at it. The evidence is obvious. And decide for yourself which one is owned by God. It's not something that's super secret. It's not something that you have to you know, dig way below the surface to see. Paul says it's obvious. So look at the evidence. What is it that they are to look for? What is it that should be so painfully obvious? Well, the first one that he gives us, the first evidence, is who is it that is known for walking with Jesus? This is in verse 7. Look at things as they are. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. The false apostles claim to be messengers of Jesus. They claim to have a superior knowledge and to exert greater authority than did the Apostle Paul. And then Paul answers, if anyone says this, if anyone thinks this, and when he says that, he's not stating a hypothetical. Um, One feature of Greek grammar is that, that you can say if this is happening as a hypothetical and you construct it one way. But you construct it a different way if you're saying if, and what you really mean is, this is what they're doing. And that's the case here. So when Paul says, if they're saying this, or if you're thinking this, he's not, he's not giving us a hypothetical. If you happen to think this way sometime, no, this is what they're actually thinking. This is what they're actually saying. If anyone is, and they are, confident in themselves that they belong to Christ. So that's, that's the claim. But their confidence was not one based on an objective evidence. They're confident in themselves. If anyone is confident in himself, that he belongs to Christ. And so it's not some objective standard that's been given to them. It's not that they're looking at the work of God in their soul and saying, I see the evidence of it that way. But the confidence is all internally. You know, I believe this is what it is. So this is what it is. Um, Their claim to belong to Christ also appears to be more than just a claim to be a believer. If all they're saying is, we're Christians, well, everyone else in the church was saying that also. They're claiming something more than that. Something that sets them apart from the other believers. And so they're claiming to have some kind of a unique attachment to Christ or a unique devotion to Christ. And while they inflate their own credentials, they also deny Paul's authenticity. He's not the genuine article. Maybe even he's disqualified himself by all of his suffering. But we, on the other hand, we have these credentials and we are you know, these kinds of people. We're in this kind of a club. Kind of like the people in 1 Corinthians. You know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Here, you know, here they are. We are of Christ. We have this special relationship. And so Paul answers them. And as he answers them at this point, he does not deny their claim. He's going to do that later. But as he answers them now, he says it in a way, we might say it like this. Assuming that's true, you know, and then we answer. That's kind of what he's saying. He doesn't say, you say this, but obviously that's not the case. So if that's what you think, then consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, assuming that's true, so also are we. So what Paul is saying is, whatever claim it is that they are making about belonging to Christ and special relationship to Christ, whatever it is, they are not excluding him. They have not stepped into territory that's beyond him. They have not reached some level of walking with the Lord Jesus that he has not reached. And whatever claim they've made, again, it's, it's all evidence that cannot really be determined. 
And the people in Corinth, looking at their lives, should say something to them. But also, you know, you can't look elsewhere and try to to shore up their claim or, or knock it down. Because who do you ask? But now think about this. The Apostle Paul, in his call to salvation and in his call to apostleship, it's known. It's verifiable. There are lots of witnesses. There are the people who traveled with Paul when the Lord Jesus appeared to him. And though they didn't understand all that was going on to the degree that Paul did, they knew something happened. There's Ananias that he is sent to while he's blind. And Ananias knows something because the Lord Jesus appeared to him also and told him what to to say to Paul. There are the traveling companions of Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, and others who've traveled with him on these missionary journeys. And they've seen his labors and they've heard him preach. And they can attest to how the Lord has been at work in his life and that Paul walks with Jesus. There are churches that have been planted and souls that have been saved and saints that have been strengthened. And there's this mound of evidence that says, whatever it is you say, you know about Jesus, we know Jesus. And so, Paul tells the church at Corinth, look at the evidence. It's obvious. If you want to to appraise my ministry and the ministry of these teachers, look at the evidence. It's right in front of you. The facts bore out the reality that Paul... Walks with the Lord. The false teachers talked a good game, but the evidence was obvious for any who cared to look. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Obviously, no. And the fruit of Paul spoke for itself, and the Spirit, the fruit of the false teachers would speak for itself. There was a second evidence that he points them to. Look at what's in front of you. And the second is this. Who is it that is known for building up the church? Verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. He speaks of boasting and he, I think, probably a little bit reticent about boasting about his authority. It's not something he just walks around talking about all the time. You know, hey, I've got this authority because of who I am. But when the need calls for it, he's not ashamed to say the Lord Jesus gave me authority for this purpose. He's not boasting about something that's untrue. He's boasting or talking about what is true. And so here are false teachers claiming authority. Paul speaks about the authority that he legitimately has. That's, I think, what he's talking about when he's boasting further and not being put to shame because it's real. Christ really has given him authority in the church and and to the church to build it up, not to destroy it. And so Paul calls for the church to look at the evidence. Who is it that is building you up? And who is it that is seeking to knock you down? Paul had preached the gospel with power. Again, he's seen many come to salvation. Churches established. Souls strengthened. Evidence is there. He's sent by God to build up churches. Now he'd spoken previously in this chapter in verses 3 through 5 about destroying fortresses. Things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. But what was the purpose of that? It was to bring people to Christ. It wasn't to destroy people. It was to bring people to the gospel, which is the only hope that they would have. Here he makes it plain. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to build you up. I'm here for your edification. To strengthen you. By the way, he also has said in verse 6 that he's ready to punish all disobedience. And that is not inconsistent with building up the church. Dealing with 
people who are hurting the church is not inconsistent with strengthening the church. You know, it's cutting out a cancer. On the other hand, the false teachers peddling a false gospel cannot strengthen the church. They are working at cross purposes to the head of the church who promised to build it. It's very likely they are the kind of people that Paul had in mind when he warned in 1 Corinthians 3.17, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that he's not talking about a building is obvious by the next statement. And that is what you are. Church, the temple of God. A third evidence. As you look at Paul, as you look at these false teachers, as you appraise a ministry, who is known as compassionate towards God's people? In verse 9, Paul says, I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. False teachers are not generally compassionate towards God's people. They are usually self-centered and are often abusive. People are seen as a means to an end. And the end is themselves often, you know, selfish ends. In verse 9, Paul is likely answering another charge. He tries to terrify you into obedience with his letters. You know, he's not that bold when he's with us, but from a distance he's really bold he writes these hard letters and he's trying to terrify you into obedience. He's, he's abusing you that way. And so you can imagine them pointing to that severe letter, that tearful letter that chapter 2 speaks of. I mean, you see it. And I would imagine that as Paul writes this one, he's aware of that. He's trying to address it so that this doesn't become more proof. Paul is, in a sense, being charged with the kind of abusive leadership that the false teachers themselves were actually guilty of. And so Paul answers them. He's not trying to terrify them into obedience. He is Seeking to call them to repentance. He is desiring that they come back to God. And know all the blessings that come with walking with God. But he's not a bully. In fact, Paul wrote to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And that's not inconsistent, by the way, with wielding spiritual weapons, divinely powerful, for the destruction of fortresses. Paul tells Timothy, you can't be quarrelsome. You're to be kind. You're to be gentle. You're seeking people. You're trying to direct them to repent. Maybe the Lord will bring them to repentance. And surely he doesn't direct Timothy to act in a way that's inconsistent with how he himself acts. Paul was gentle. That's why he patiently waited and looked for the Corinthians to repent. They had mistaken his patience as a weakness. He assured them he was not weak. Then they mistake his letter, his hard letters, as a kind of bullying. But throughout this letter, Paul assures them that's not the case. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, Paul said, 
I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Earlier, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he had said of the Corinthians, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of flesh, but on tablets of human hearts. You are our letter of commendation. He's not trying to bully them. He loves them. And now Paul calls upon them to look at the evidence. What is it right before your face? Who is it that's gentle with you? And who's harsh? God's servants are marked by compassion. Next, who is it that employs carnal methods? Verse 10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. We see here again a familiar charge. Something similar to it was made back in verse 1. When Paul said, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. But there the, the emphasis seemed to be on the inconsistency, the, even the hypocrisy. You know, you're one way when you're there, when, when you're at a distance, another way when you're right here with us. Here, it's not the inconsistency so much as it is that um, you would think that a person who is gifted by the Lord and the Spirit of God's working through them, that when they're with us, they'd they'd be impressive. And they'd speak in a certain way. That's the false teachers talking. There there would be a a personality, a kind of a charisma about them that's winsome to people, and and, their speech would be winsome, and that kind of thinking. And instead of a... A, a winsomeness, a, a, a charisma that attracted people and commanded respect. They look at Paul, who's gentle with people. And they saw his gentleness as a detraction. That kind of thinking was no doubt strengthened as they pointed to Paul's departure from Corinth. After the sorrowful visit that he refers to in chapter 2 and verse 1, when he's opposed, and instead of getting in whoever's face that opposed him, he packs up and leaves. Well, he, he left to give them time to repent. You know, earlier in chapter 10, verse 2, he said, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold. Don't make me be bold. But they look at all that and they think, weakness. Years ago, I think I was still in high school, maybe a senior in high school, maybe a freshman in college, somewhere right in there. An old pastor, I'd gone to to his church and um, he was relaying a story about something that had happened at another church within the previous couple of weeks where evidently a deacon had said something to the preacher and I don't remember what was said, but I remember him speaking with disdain about the preacher taking it and saying, you know, if it had been him, we'd been in the parking lot scrapping. And just, I was kind of shocked, like, wow. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. (laughs) I thought you weren't supposed to do that. Um, But just kind of shocked. The kind of disdain, though, that he felt for the other preacher who took it is the disdain that the false apostles feel for the Apostle Paul who took it. But again, as we've seen previously, what they viewed as weakness was actually patience. It was gentleness. It was leading by serving. Jesus had said in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, 
you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Those who would be first will be your slave. What did Paul say he was to the church at Corinth? We are your bond slave for Christ's sake. The false teachers not only attacked Paul's personal presence, they also attacked his speech, calling it contemptible. Some people read this and they think it means that Paul had a speech impediment. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. But I think the point here really is that he did not practice the polished oratorical skills that were so highly prized in in the Greek culture. Um, It's kind of strange that uh, the Corinthians view him this way. You know, he went to, I think it was Lystra, and they heard him speak and said, there's a God. But on the other hand, he's no Apollos. Maybe Paul could speak that way. He chose not to. Whether or not he could, he had certainly refused to do so. And so he writes to the Corinthians in his first letter in chapter 2 and said, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. If Paul spoke in a, a very polished way, if he used the, you know, the rhetoric of the day, if he, if he could, could put out this beautifully uh, logical And surely he can. I mean, we read his letters. But if that's all it was, then at the end of the day, he could boast in himself for the work of God and the people. People could boast in Paul. Wow, Paul. But Paul said, I speak in this way so that you boast in God, not in me, not in the wisdom of any man. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, He said, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The false teachers thought that what you needed was the right kind of personality and polished speech. They're looking at carnal methods. This is what you need To get people to come to church and to come to Christ. This is what you need to build a church. Paul said, I spoke to you in fear and trembling. And the power of God. So Paul calls the Corinthians to look at the evidence. Who is it that uses slick skills to sway you? Who speaks the truth plainly? The answer is obvious. Fifth, who is known for integrity? Verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Here he speaks kind of to the charge of inconsistency. They say, I'm bold from a distance. Timid, up close. But anyone who would think that Paul was inconsistent, he says here, you should consider this. Later, in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, he writes, I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, That if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. What I am 
in word, by letters, when absent. Such persons we are also indeed when present. There's no disparity. There's no inconsistency. There's no hypocrisy. What I am at a distance, I will be up close. The same person, whether near or far, He's not just saying that to answer the charges to these people in Corinth. It was the truth. It was who he was. Sometimes we see preachers one way in the pulpit and a very different way out of the pulpit. So that what they are out of the pulpit really undoes everything they say in the pulpit. That wasn't true of Paul. In Acts chapter 20, as he's bidding his farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus, he writes in verse 20 about how he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Everything that you needed to know, I declared to you. I said it publicly. I said it from house to house. I was the same in both places. No hypocrisy. His integrity was unassailable. Paul caused the church to examine the evidence. Sixth. Who is it that is known by humility? Now, we've gone not super slow, but I guess kind of slow through these verses that we've looked at so far. I'm going to get verses 12 through 18 under this one, okay? Um, As he begins to address this, who is it who's known by humility? He begins by pointing to the illogical comparisons that the false teachers make. But before he does that, he says something that is kind of funny. Um, You know, they've said that he's not very bold, he's timid. And then he tells them, don't make me come and be bold. But now he says, we're not this bold. <laughs> you know, I, I'm bold. I'm going to be bold enough to come and discipline when I have to discipline. But I'm not this bold. I'm not bold to, to compare like you compare because you compare yourself by yourself. I'm not that bold. So you may not think it's funny. I thought it was funny. Uh, you know, I'm bold enough to, to, to come and discipline when I have to discipline. But I'm not, I'm not so bold to, to be illogical and making comparisons like you are. So here's one way that he's not bold. The false teachers were making comparisons. Again, That how do you verify them? If you compare yourself based upon standards that you make up, you know, it's kind of hard to know what the standard is. Or anybody else know what the standard is. And you can say, I, I am the greatest because you made the standard and the standard perfectly fits you. I'm reminded of, of kids, I've seen this recently, uh, playing made-up games. And so, you know, this game does not exist anywhere else but in their own minds. And there's no written rules. And the rules are constantly shifting because they're making it up as they go along. And whoever wins is the one who can probably yell the loudest about the rules, right? Uh, That's kind of what these false apostles are doing. They have set standards for themselves and they fit the standard. Look at us. And if they need to shift it a little bit, they can because there's no objective standard. It's all what they think. And then they also compare themselves to themselves. And if you compare yourself to yourself, you can convince yourself you're pretty good. Imagine a person who, you could do this with a lot of things, but let's say basketball. Here's a kid who's homeschooled. So that part's not hard to imagine. But let's say it's a day when there's no internet and TV, okay? So you, maybe you've seen one basketball game in your life, and you're impressed by it. And you've got an old hoop outside, and you've got a basketball. And maybe you're the oldest of several kids, and so you get out and you start playing basketball in the yard, and you convince yourself you're pretty good. <laughs> I mean, you're the best player you know. And so your brothers and sisters think you're pretty awesome too. 
And you play and you play and you play and you dribble and you're dribbling across rocks and grass and, you know, your hoop's crooked and you, you are convinced you got it. You know, and people ask you what you're going to do when you grow up and you're going to play in the NBA. And you get to college and you are a walk-on. You're going to walk on for tryouts. And you go out there and suddenly you see people who are good. And maybe it's shocking. Maybe they laugh. If all you have to compare yourself to is yourself, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be the greatest. The super apostles, they don't compare themselves to anything that God has said. They compare themselves to themselves. That's why Paul's speaking about them being illogical here. I wouldn't dare to compare myself like you compare yourself because you compare yourself to yourself. How do you do that? They're without understanding, he says. They're mad. So how, if you're going to make comparisons, how do you compare? Well, in verses 13 through 15, Paul speaks of having a right measure. He says, we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure. And that sounds kind of confusing. But basically, I think what he's saying is this. God has given us a standard, a sphere. The word is actually canon, like the, the canon of Scripture. It's, it, but, but the idea is that there is a measurement that you can measure up against, a sphere that you can fit within. So Paul says God has given us this measurement or this sphere and we're going to measure up to it. And we're not going to measure beyond it. But that's what we're going to measure ourselves against. Paul had given to Paul a certain sphere. And Paul is laboring to do all he can within that sphere. He's not trying to work outside of that sphere. He's trying to do what God's given him to do. The false apostles have stepped into his sphere. <laughs> and they're trying to take it over. They're not trying to build on the foundation that he has laid. They're trying to say he had no business laying the foundation. He's disqualified. You should listen to us. We're the authority. You could say that Paul stayed in his lane. God has given him a lane. And he's staying there. This is what I've got to do. And it was enough. The church in Corinth was within his sphere. God had sent him to the Gentiles to preach in places where the gospel was not yet preached. Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. Paul saw the, the Corinthians converted. Paul saw that church begun by the power of God, certainly. But it was Paul's labors, humanly speaking. So he's not comparing himself to himself. He's not trying to compare himself to others. He's looking to measure himself and his labor according to the standard or the sphere that God himself has given to him. That is not pride. It's not a lack of humility to say God has given me this to do and I'm laboring to do it. Some people may hear it and think it's boastful, but... He's not saying anything, anything that's untrue. God has given me this to do. This is what I'm doing. I'm not saying God's given me this to do, but I'm doing this. You know, so much more. The false teachers, though, had come into his fear. They sought to take credit for his labor. And so Paul calls the church to look at the evidence. Who is it that demonstrates humility? Even in claiming authority. One of us has been given authority by God, given a sphere. The other has taken it for themselves and measured themselves against themselves. It's madness. At the end of verse 15 and into verse 16, Paul speaks about his desire, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere Enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, 
and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Paul's hope is that as the Corinthians repent, and as God continues to work in them and strengthen them, their letter of commendation grows in a sense, so that others see and hear what's happening there, and they become, in essence, ascending church for Paul to go into other places where the gospel has not yet been, and in that way, his territory, if you will, is enlarged. His fear is enlarged as God sends him to yet more places. And God does, doesn't he? Ultimately to Rome. And then finally in verses 17 and 18, he speaks about a principle, if you will. He's talked about um, the, the boast of the false apostles and he himself is boasting, in a sense. There are places where he talks about not boasting, and then he does boast. But he's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in God. And so, he says here, quoting Jeremiah, he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And then, the key, really, it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. As you evaluate these ministries... Who is it that's commending themselves? And who is it that God is commending? As evidenced by these other evidences that he's mentioned. Upon whom do you see the seal of God's approval? And who is it that's commending themselves? As you look at those two, one, we're seeking glory for themselves. And one's pointing Glory to God. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. One self-serving, the other says, we are your slaves for Christ's sake. I would think that as you look at ministries today, those are good questions to ask. Good things to look for. Look at the evidence. Which one commends itself? Which one does God command? Which is humble? Which is, you know, operates with integrity? Which is building up the church? Those kinds of questions. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you that you, as you were at work through the Apostle Paul in your church, God, you are still at work. Um, we're grateful, Father, that your power has not diminished. Your sphere has not diminished. God, we thank you for the, uh, the little sphere that you've given to us. We do pray, God, that we would labor within the sphere that you've given to us by the, the means that you've given to us and that you would be pleased to expand your church and your kingdom yet further and that Christ would receive all the glory that's rightfully his. We ask in Jesus' name.